This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam. Well, okay, so we've had a lot of amazing guests on this podcast. And I mean, thank God we've had We've had Oscar winners, music industry legends, New York Times columnists, some of the biggest faith leaders on the planet, some of the biggest VCs on the planet. And it's been an enormous, unbelievably humbling privilege to spend time uh, learning from all of them. But one thing I realized just before uh, we started recording is that I've never actually been intimidated by a guest before. But this morning before this pod, I was basically like Costanza level freaking out. And this is going to be an awesome one, folks. We have with us, quite simply, the most important and well-known Jewish and Israeli food writer on the planet. She's worked with Chrissy Teigen, Candace Nelson. She's a massive culinary influencer in her own right. Uh, she's the author of cookbooks like Gazos and Sababa. She's Adina Sussman. And we're going to talk about food and culture, obviously. But first, so let's just quickly set this up. So we're smack in the middle of talking about the book of Leviticus on this podcast, which on its surface might seem like not only one of the most boring books in the Bible, but one of the most boring books like in general. I mean, it's like so unrelatable, right? It's all sacrifices, rituals, temples. I mean, come on. But in reality, it's one of my favorite works of all time, not only literarily speaking, for which it's vastly underrated, but even as a like a philosophical statement. In fact, I think it holds the key to the future of the West as a whole. So consider it this way. The West traditionally rests on two essential pillars, Athens and Jerusalem, ancient Greece, ancient Israel, Plato and the Bible. And sometimes the way we think about uh, we think about this relationship is we get our politics from Athens and our religion from Jerusalem. But in fact, what's happened is that we also tend to think about our religion, about faith in relentlessly Greek philosophical terms. We think about faith almost like mathematical logic. It has certain principles and doctrines with that which have to be studied and worked into a coherent system. But that's actually a terrible description of the kind of world the Bible is describing. I mean, it may all be true. Religion is also belief. It's also cerebral. But the Bible kind of takes that all for granted. And what the Bible actually describes when it talks about religion is not something theoretical, something intellectual. No, what it actually describes is something embodied. There are all sorts of things you have to do, and you have to use all five senses. You have to see and be seen at the temple. You have to hear the blast of the ram's horn, the shofar, every year. You even have to use your sense of, of smell, smelling sweet spices at the end of the Sabbath. And you certainly have to use your sense of taste. I mean, part of relating to God is basically having a barbecue, eating sacrifices in the temple. We just finished Passover, having the Passover sacrifice. Because guess what? Faith, religion, community, the world of the spirit— these things are so important that they can't be limited to just a classroom or some dusty corner in a library. They need to infuse our entire lives. We need to infuse all of our experiences with meaning. And this lesson is so essential for the West and for all societies today, but especially we in the West, because what we have in our society these days is what I'd call a meaning deficit. We have so much stuff, but no idea how to infuse it with meaning. And so we're miserable. But what's the ticket out? Is it intellectual? Is it academic? Is it withdrawing into a small spiritual enclave to find meaning there? Is it the kind of introduction that I just did? Maybe, but I don't think so. 
I think the answer is to remind ourselves, like the Bible, that we can bring meaning, joy, and so much more to the to the entirety of our of our existence. It's rediscovering the holistic vision of moral and spiritual joy, not of Athens, but of Jerusalem. And so to unpack this, I brought on someone whose entire career has been devoted to finding joy in not just the texts, but in the sights, the smells, the tastes of Jerusalem itself. Not just Jerusalem as an idea, but actual literal Jerusalem. Someone who has brought that sense of joy, that sense of meaning, to people, societies, to families, to cultures all across the globe. She is world-renowned food writer, author, influencer. You all know her from Gazos, from Sababa, from from amazing cookbooks, from her incredible Instagram. She's Adina Sussman. Adina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. I'm actually reporting in from Tel Aviv, which is my locus operandi where I live and work in the shadow of the Carmel Market. So I think, you know, Jerusalem, let's expand this from Jerusalem to Israel, because I would say that Israel has really been my inspiration, my absorption into Israeli culture, all of it, you know. That's unbelievable. I have to tell you, they're not a sponsor of the pod yet, but the best, like, I want to be clear here. The best cheeseburger I've ever had, <laughs> kosher faux cheese, to be clear, like non-dairy yes. cheese, is this, re- like, the kosher restaurant scene in Tel Aviv. I think it's called Bodega. There's, like, this awesome kosher restaurant scene in Tel Aviv now. I was floored the last time I was here. We're really not sure if that cheese is parv or not. <laughs> I, I almost didn't want to know. No, I'm just kidding. It, it totally is, and um, it is an amazing place. And, you know, I think that's one of the great things about Israeli food, kosher food in Israel, you know, like it's, you know, when you live in a place where the whole country is infused with with Judaism, among other religions, I should say, Muslims and Christians also have an important place here. But, you know, it's about having the best burger. If it's kosher, it's got to be the best burger. The kosher is a happens to be. And that was, that's sort of my entire philosophy with my book, Sababa, which, you know, it's not advertised as a kosher book, but it is a kosher book. And, you know, what I want to do with my message and the food that I create and showing people my life in Israel is that kashrut is, it's the late motif, but it's not, it's not the main plot here. You know, it's just, it's something that I want every, the maximum number of people to be able to enjoy what I do and have an entry point into what I do. And, you know, that's what's so great about eating in restaurants in Israel that are kosher. So I want to kind of start at the beginning, like from a cultural standpoint. So I, I kind of remember growing up and I'm not even that old. Like I rem- even, but even I remember growing up. How old are you? I'm 34. All right. So I'm like a baby. Right. Oh, so, yeah. I, so I remember growing up and I don't even remember Jewish cookbooks, but I'm sure there must've been like kind of informal kosher cookbooks. Oh, there's a lot. Yeah. But like growing up, there was basically like one chicken recipe that everybody had. There was like one meat recipe that everyone had. All the restaurants were like a melange of (laughs) falafel, pizza, <laughs> and sushi came later, honestly. Like, right? Yeah. But like, this is like the pre-sushi revolution. Like, I remember, like, kosher restaurants were just all like one thing, and then all of a sudden, it feels like in the last ten years, maybe, it's like in the social media era, there's been this crazy explosion of kosher cuisine. There's fusion restaurants. There's great kosher Mexican food. There's great kosher Thai food. What has happened in the world of kosher cuisine to explain this? 
I mean, I think I'd like to to go back to Israeli cuisine and talk about how food in Israel really changed as Israel opened up as a culture. And I think it, it'll answer that question as well, as far as kosher food, you know? So I've been working as a food writer for about 20 years and my food writing career kind of advanced as Israeli food moved forward many steps. And, you know, if you think about it, so in Israel, you know, we all grew up coming to Israel. And, you know, when I was a kid here, you know, the mark of a great chef was a chef who could cook amazing French food, who could cook amazing Italian food, who could make the best pizza, who could, um, you know, cook the best Asian food, you know, because Israelis were aspiring to be as good as other people. And, you know, Israel became sort of, I'd say, shifted from a third world country to a first world country, we became wealthier country, educated, people started traveling, you know, the social, the internet uh, sort of expanded the world, you know, Israel is a very you know, successful country, you know, high tech, there's a lot of things that we export that the world is interested in. And chefs, young chefs started traveling around the world and working in Michelin star restaurants. And, you know, they would get to France in about 2000 or so and realize that, the French chefs were just taking all the best ingredients that were right under their noses in their little town, the best cheeses, the best produce and everything, and just coaxing the best flavors out of them and really staying true to what was local. And these people started saying, oh my God, wait a minute. As they say in Hebrew, nafal ha'asimon, like the coin dropped in the payphone, like, wait a minute, I live in this country where we have an incredible heritage of, you know, foods that have been grown here since biblical times. We have the most amazing olive oils. We have the best seasonal. We've been cooking market-based seasonal cooking before those things were trendy. And, you know, I'm going to go home and I'm going to take pride in what's in Israel. And I'm going to create something new with something that we have that most other countries don't, which is more than a hundred different immigrant groups and ethnic cultures that both came to this country and are indigenous to this place. So all this stuff kind of came together and created sort of like we talk about in, in Judaic studies, a dialectic, you know, there's a dialectic of Jewish food going on. Constantly people are trying to elevate what's going on, the ideas, the fusion, you know, bringing in immigrant cultures and pride. And I think that that is how Israeli food got to where it is today. It was like, finally, you know, looking outward and then turning inward with an immense amount of introspection and pride and interest in what is going on right here. So I would say the same thing is true in the United States, you know, kosher restaurants, you know, Jewish religious people, uh, kosher people are influenced by the world around them. Instagram, we have amazing influencers like Hani Applebaum, Brizzy in Brooklyn, and many others, you know, who sort of picked up the mantle from people like Susie Fishbein, who were super important in, in, in introducing. Shasta Susie Fishbein, like. Susie Fishbein is the OG. She, that woman deserves a lot of credit. An absolute living legend. <laughs> she is a legend. I love her. She's a friend. Susie lived in the age of pre, she sold hundreds of thousands of books before Instagram. Like that is like, that is a Guinness record level, you know. And even before her, there were people like Joan Nathan, who's kind of the godmother of Israeli cooking, who has been writing about Jewish food for the New York Times and writing very scholarly and beautiful cookbooks for decades. You know, all these different things have an influence, both about showing people outside of our little world what this world has to offer and also taking things from that world and bringing them in. So it's sort of like maybe taking the concept of Torah Omada to like a food level, sort of like mixing the two things together. This is exactly where I was going. Oh, my God. I love this. Let's do it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, I think that there are ways to, you know, what we've learned in the last few decades in, in all cultures is that 
there are ways to embrace what's outside of a culture while remaining true and authentic to your own. And I think that that is what, where kosher food is going and where Israeli food is going as well. You know, so that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how I see it. I love this. And look, you know, my, my grandfather of blessed memory, Rabbi Norman Lamb was, was obviously instrumental in sort of popularizing and, and teaching about, about Torah Umada. And one thing that I know used to drive him nuts was the caricature uh, and and for the listeners, so that Torah Mada is this is the philosophy that sees the world of Jewish faith or faith in general, depending on your tradition, but the world of Jewish faith is being enriched by the beauty and the bounty of all of creation. And a big part of it is how can we look at the world around us and take what's beautiful from it and and integrate it into our own practice. Which is really the, you know, that is the essence of Judaism, the essence of intellectual intellectual curiosity of both sharing what we have to offer and, you know, absorbing things from other cultures. Like that's really, that's where it's at. That's what we've got going for us, I think. Yes. And what you said that so resonated with me was that it, what used to drive him nuts was this caricature of this philosophy, which which saw the sole endeavor of a religious practice as just trying to take what's best from the world around us and that's it. But right. what you're articulating is what he thought was sort of the payoff of all of that, which was, OK, now that we've absorbed the best of what's around us, what can we now bring out to the rest of the world that's unique? What unique things can we teach? We're not just takers. We're also teachers. And I see you as actually one of the most important Jewish teachers in the world. I mean, you're not you're not doing it in sort of the way that I think, you know, most people assume religious studies get taught, right? Because it's it's very cerebral and academic. Or cultural studies. Or cultural studies. But one of the things that distinguishes biblical faith, Jewish faith, is that we are so embodied. I mean, food, just to take one example, is such an integral part of our expression of our of our faith, of our community. And so I'm so curious, just having followed you for so long, been such a fan, what can you learn about a culture uniquely through food that you might not be able to learn in some other way? Like what's the what's the unique perspective on a culture that you get specifically through that sensory experience? Or at least what have, what have you gotten out of it? I mean, I would say the great privilege of being a food writer is, you know, being invited into people's homes. And, you know, where else do you really drill down on the essence of someone's religion, culture, uh, food ways, uh, mores, social mores than in their home. And, you know, there's something about it's beautiful. breaking bread with people and sharing a meal and also asking, you know, I always, I think it's because of my Jewish upbringing and, you know, the the emphasis on learning in my family, I always approach everything from a place of, of curiosity, of, of not knowing. Even after working in this field for 25 years and, and writing 15 cookbooks, co-authoring books with many people, you know, I always go into it assuming that I don't know and so that I can really absorb and take from every table that I sit at, every dish that I cook, every ingredient that I experience, every new thing that I see, like I try and just view it through the eyes of someone who doesn't know. And I have been, Sababa, my cookbook, which came out in 2019, was really about how an American living in Israel absorbed Israeli culture and then filtered it back out to the American audience, sort of like an insider out, outsider experience, which I think is actually something that a lot of American Jews can relate to. And, you know, my upbringing in the United States actually really prepared me quite well for living in Israel and sort of like feeling very at home, but also still stepping out a little bit sometimes and seeing something from a different perspective. So I think always 
making sure that you do feel like a bit of an outsider stepping out, looking at everything. And, you know, in Israel specifically. The idea of going to someone's house and home and is amazing. Yeah, I mean, cooking is a language, cooking is a language all its own. What's so beautiful about cooking with a grandma is that you could not share a language and you could end up having a new shared language. You know, you can spend four hours cooking with an Uzbeki Jewish Safta who doesn't speak a word of Hebrew and somehow you come out laughing, crying, eating, joking, hugging, smelling. Every, every, every sense is engaged in the process of cooking. There's observational skills. There's, there's generosity. There's you know, sensitivity. There's observation. There's culture and history. And, you know, and it all kind of comes to the fore and on the plate and in a recipe. And, you know, and so what I tried to do in my book was to, to show people in Israel that maybe they don't experience uh, by reading the news or if they had not been to Israel before or in just showing people that incredible, uh, rich variety of cultures here that exist and that coexist. You know, and one of the stories that I often tell about living in the Carmel Market, which is Israel's sort of main outdoor food artery, sort of it's right near the beach. We live right near the Carmel Market. And I, when I moved to Israel, my husband got us an apartment. My now husband got us an apartment right there because he knew that that was something that was going to make me feel extra at home. And then my joke now is that I came to Israel for love, but I stayed for the shook. And, um, <laughs> and you know, a lot, of, a lot of people working in the shook are Arab or Palestinian. And, you know, we're, um, we're buying vegetables from each other. We're talking, we're sharing. And on days when there are Muslim holidays, the shook is kind of empty. And, you know, it's a cultural and culinary coexistence that people don't see on the news that happens every day, thousands of times. All the best tlina in Israel is made by Arabs. And it's all bought by Jews, many of whom are Haredi or Hasidim, you know, and like these things happen. And, you know, like we're not talking about boycotts. We're talking about daily life here in Israel, you know? So like, that's like a larger point about coexistence. But I'm just saying that if you just stand back and look at life through the lens of food, you can learn an incredible amount about every person in every walk of life. And as far as specifically, as far as Jewish tradition, one of the things that I absolutely love about living in Israel and going to the Shuk is, you know, in, in the United States, when I used to go to the Union Square Farmer's Market and I would ask, you know, one of the purveyors, like, when are pomegranates in season? They would say, mm, late September. And here, when I go to the Shuk and I say, you know, when are the pomegranates in season? And he'll say, you know, maybe like the, the Rosh Hashanah, you know, and so every vegetable is tied to an event on the Jewish calendar. Every, the peak ripeness is connected deeply to our traditions and our holidays, you know? So like for me, like that just imbues it with an extra layer of meaning and specialness for me. Like when I ask, when is the first asparagus poking out of the ground? And they say, Tubishvat, like to me, that just like light bulbs are going off in my head about things that I've been learning since childhood. To do that in Israel is an incredible privilege. And to then share stories like that with people abroad, I think really imbues eating and food with just a deeper level of meaning just through my experiences, you know, without, like you said, without, you know, I'm not standing on a soapbox talking about politics or religion. I'm talking about my daily life in Israel and the way that food has both inspired me, educated me, sustained me, created a career for me, been my, you know, I didn't go to an ulpan where I learned Hebrew. I, my ulpan is the Shuka Carmel, where I go every day and I am educated about holidays and life and culture. And, you know, the spice, the spice market that I go to is a third generation business 
where, you know, the grandparents came from Yemen and they used to dry thousands of peppers and make their own paprika. And now the grandkids are getting PhDs and starting startups. And I feel like it's a privilege for me to capture these stories and sort of the way that Jews do so well, document things, you know, for his, for historical purposes, for posterity, because who knows how long these businesses are going to be around. And they tell very meaningful stories about how Israel came to be. And within that, how, you know, how Judaism is infused into those, into those stories. One of the great Jewish, contemporary Jewish historians, Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik, has a wonderful essay called Rupture and Reconstruction, where he talks about a shift that's occurred in contemporary Jewish intellectual life. But it, I, I think it's, it sort of speaks generally to religious life in the West as a whole, where he documents a shift towards an academic tradition where where faith gets passed down through texts and and religion gets mediated through text and he contrasts that with an older and in many ways more organic way in which religion and community sustained itself which is what he calls the mimetic tradition right the idea that you learn how to behave and what to do not from a text not because you read it in a rule book but from your parents from your mother from your father from your grandmother and what you were describing or how your rabbi lived their life. Like, I mean, I, you can edit this out. You want, but everyone knows that Rav Soloveitchik's wife ate Kraft American cheese slices because it was a different time and Tootsie rolls. So, you know, and like, and that was how we learned things and that's how we learned what was okay and what wasn't. And, you know, it was a simpler time. And, you know, I think, people now have either more or less faith in their leaders than they used to. The best story that I heard when I was in when I was getting rabbinical ordination, the story that that, that everybody tells and that everybody tells is the story of when Dr. Salvechik's father was this sort of famous Rabbi Salvechik, one of the great theologians of the 20th century. He's staying at home for whatever he was staying at home for a while for whatever reason uh, and his wife was having him help with the dishes and she's washing the dishes and he's drying them. And he, you know, and in a traditional Jewish kitchen, because we keep milk and meat separate, so oftentimes we'll have, you know, a separate sink and counter and so on for meat and then a separate one for, for dairy. Um, and so he's taking the the quote-unquote meat towel and drying dairy dishes, and his wife starts yelling at him, and he says, no, no, don't worry, it's fine, there's nothing wrong with it. And then he asks his son, his son Chaim, he says, Chaim, get the Yoridei. It's like a classic book of Jewish law. Get the get the Shulchan Aruch, she'll, uh, get the Shulchan Aruch, we'll show her that it's fine. And she turns to him, and the Shulchan Aruch, <laughs> as, as, as you know, but our listeners might not, it's the, the authoritative work of Jewish law in the world. And so she turns to her husband and she says, you and your Shulchan are going to trafe up my kitchen, right? Like, you and your Shulchan are going to ruin the kashrut in my kitchen, which gets to the mimetic experience. And one thing that you said earlier, just it so struck a chord with me, is in what other endeavor are you going to so naturally and organically be learning through this mimetic tradition, like learning from your grandmother how to do what she did? But that kind of gets me to not attention, but to some to a dynamic that occurs even in that sort of traditional form of learning that I think people are insufficiently attuned to, right? You know, 
Proverbs 1.8, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. One of the foundational expressions of Jewish tradition. But I think we kind of get stuck in thinking that when you learn that way, innovation never happens. But it does, right? I mean, you just can document the, the explosion of creativity in Israeli food and Jewish food, which you a revolution that you've that you've been instrumental in spearheading. How does innovation happen? in that kind of traditional learning environment, right? You, you know, how do you, how do you negotiate, you know, staying true to the, to the traditions versus change and incorporating new things? I mean, it's very interesting. Things have different monikers these days. So like, you know, you're talking about, we talk about cultural appropriation is a hot button issue these days. All right. So when I, when someone talks about Jewish food, I want them to acknowledge its provenance. I want them to acknowledge where it comes from. And what I've learned is that when you start out acknowledging where a dish comes from, that is when you can take liberties and move forward with it. It's like if you decided to try and advance a Jewish topic without acknowledging its roots, either in the Tanakh or the Talmud or the Shulchan Aruch or the Mishnah. Like, where, 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 what are you trying to advance if you don't know where it's coming from? So, you know, for me, what's always really important, you know, if I'm making uh, mafrum, which is a meat stuffed cauliflower or eggplant or potatoes, like I'm going to try and make, try and make sure that I know and acknowledge that that's a Libyan Jewish, a Libyan dish, Libyan Jewish dish. And then from there, if I want to make innovations, as long as I've been very clear that this is not mine, this is something that, you know, came from somewhere and has a deep rooted tradition, then I could maybe like do like a fun, like trina miso sauce on it or something like that, you know? So for me, it's always about going backwards and really getting rooted and deep into like where this stuff comes from and then like taking it to the next level. But when you ask also where innovation comes in the Jew in the Jewish food world, I think it often comes from women at home. Um, what I've seen that's been really interesting is social media, like the biggest Jewish and kosher social media stars are all women who are the people who are cooking for their families every day and shopping and looking for interesting things, um, looking to globetrot through their cooking, looking to share interesting things on the Shabbat table. And also, if I can be a little controversial, show their faces. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, everyone is entitled to open a social media page. And, um, you know, breaking news, by the way, Jewish women have faces. It's been confirmed. Jewish women have faces. And, and you don't have to tap into someone's Instagram page if you want. But these lovely incredible women are putting it out there for anyone who wants to, you know, learn from them and be inspired by them. And also for them to have this dialectic that is what's so important, like to, to interact with the greater world. So I think a lot of it comes from the home. I think a lot of it comes from Shabbat, which is actually the subject for my next book. Like Shabbat cooking is really the core of Jewish cooking. This is exactly where I wanted to go. Like what <laughs> role, like seriously, like my mom used to joke, and I I feel like tons of people do this. Like she would always say around Thanksgiving time, it would drive her nuts because she'd be in the supermarket and she'd hear, you know, people from other communities being like, oh my God, I have to cook like for a whole meal for everybody. And she's like, my guy, I do this like every Shabbos, right? So like, right. A, di a dinner party right. is always known as a Shabbat dinner. Right. So how, what role does, does the Sabbath and cooking for the Sabbath Shabbat play in advancing both maybe hindering, right? Because you have to do it every week, so maybe you can't do as complicated a thing, right? But in but but really in advancing Jewish food. The concept of, you know, the prescriptions on cooking for Shabbat we know come straight from the source from the beginning. 
Um, we rest. We don't cook on Shabbat. If we are traditional Jews, many Jews do cook on Shabbat, and I'm not. I'm not here to judge, but the tradition is to put these long cooked dishes on the stove before Shabbat starts and think about what is more essential right now in our society than self-care, unplugging, taking some time to yourself, slowing down, really like getting a sense of, of where you are, taking a break from the week. I mean, Shabbat is like the most modern age old concept around and that like applies to the cooking as well. Like what, you know, I want women or people who cook to view Shabbat as a time to enjoy their food and to not stress about their food. And, you know, I think that Shabbat also has such important, Shabbat food is all about being around the table. It's, it's less about the fussing and the, and the cooking on Shabbat. It's about really getting down to brass tacks with your family and friends and, and singing and talking and having a meal that's open-ended. I mean, what kind of a concept is that, you know, with, with no interruptions and just like the opportunity for, for deep conversation and, and napping at the table. I mean, who knows what happens? Everything happens at a Shabbat table, you know, and, you know, growing up in a, I grew up in an Orthodox home in a place where there were not a lot of uh, religious people and everybody wanted in on our Shabbat. <laughs> you know, there's something magical about the bubble that you can go into when you have Shabbat, including Shabbat cooking, you know, a chameen, a chillant that's been sitting on the stove all night. It's just imbued with uh, magic because, you know, how does this incredible thing that just passively cooked for, for 12 or 16 hours is so delicious. You just bring it to the table and you have an, an entire meal right there. And, you know, throughout history as well, you know, the whole concept of of chameen or cholent, like it came from the fact that um, in ancient cultures, people had shared ovens. And if everyone would bring their chalot or their breads to bake in the shared oven, and then they would use the residual heat from the shared oven, they would put their chameen in there and the oven would no longer be working. And then after shul in the morning, the women would go and collect their pots. And that's how cholent or chameen was often cooked. So, you know, there's so much history, there's so much richness there's so much culture you know and there's also just a vast variety of these dishes that i've been learning for my book my book is a combination my shabbat book which is coming out next year is a combination of these traditional dishes from different countries along with sort of more modern israeli sababa style food but like every ethnic dish every dish that comes from a country is has a story has meaning has a place in our culture is a way of marking our Jewish experience and the experience of people who lived in other countries and found themselves in a position where they had to leave to come to Israel to safety or you know mem or having wonderful memories of their life in Sidon Lebanon a place that I never even really knew that Jews lived and you know and just hearing that the food for me being invited to someone home is like the cooking is just the beginning. It's the talking, it's the stories, it's, it's all the things that you get to learn. And I think the same is true about Shabbat. You know, you're not spending all your time in the kitchen cooking, you're spending your time at the table talking. So like, I think that that is like really at the essence of it. And it's a very modern concept with a very ancient construct is what I would say. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. And I, one thing that actually gets me wondering is, so in the Shabbat experience, it's this really intimate, and as you said, like people are coming in, they're guests, but it is this sort of like really intimate intra-communal thing and lots of, lots of different religious, faith, social communities have, you know, sabbaticals oh, yes. or Sabbaths or whatever it is, but it is like an intra, an intra-communal thing. It's almost like a familial experience at its core. Mm -hmm. One thing that you've done, which has been so fascinating in your career is you, you've not only 
you know, become this kind of massive influencer in your own right, but you've also worked with other big, and you've worked with Chrissy Deegan, with Candace Nelson, and you've done a lot of, you, you've done a lot of co-teaching, as I'd put it, with, with other people who are bringing out their food vision into the world. And as someone who is as proud of your traditions and your particular perspective and point of view as you are, I can only imagine that over the course of those experiences, you were doing a lot of teaching to those partners about your own traditions. What have you learned about teaching Jewish culture or Israeli culture or both? Yeah, by by teaching to non-Jews. You know, well, it's funny when you when you talk about you know, co-authoring a book is kind of like the ultimate year-long chavruta. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you're sitting there every day, talking to someone, learning with them, going back and forth, exchanging ideas, you know, kicking certain ideas to the curb, you know, bringing other ones to the fore, bringing in new sources, asking other people for advice. I mean, it's really like, there's quite a lot of similarities there. And I think that, you know, a good example is I work with Chrissy Teigen, who is, um, a massive social media influencer um, for a long time was known as the mayor of Twitter. <laughs> now Elon Musk, I think it's the mayor of Twitter, but, and, you know, I spend time with her and her husband, John Legend, and I live with them when I work on the cookbooks with them. And um, I was there deep during COVID. We were in a COVID pod working on a book together and it was Hanukkah all of a sudden. And, and all of a sudden Chrissy was talking about how her paternal grand her paternal grandmother's name was Ruth Schaefer. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, we have something here. She's like, you know, my dad doesn't really talk about it a lot. But, you know, I think his mom was Jewish. And, you know, it turns out that his mother, um, you know, married a non-Jewish person and lost touch with the Jewish part of her family. And her father was not raised with Jewish traditions. But Chrissy, seeing how connected I am to my tradition and, and seeing where I live, you know, we did Hanukkah together wow. for the first time. We made a full Hanukkah. We lit candles. We, call, we, zoomed, we, um, we called her dad on FaceTime. We lit candles together. We played dreidel. It was in Pe it made People magazine, you know? So like, these are just the kind of things just happen again through food because food is there as the great educator and, and buffer in its own right. And it's just a, it's just a way to put something in front of someone that's delicious and interesting, and then to provide the cultural concept. Uh, you know, so I think for me, uh, when I worked with Candace, for instance, you know, like, you know, we made an apple cake for the book and like, I grew up making an apple kuchen and, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of history, a lot of stories, you know, and like, um, I think just talking about it from a very personal perspective, sort of the same way that I talk about my life in Israel is just something that people can relate to. I'm just a person with a vast, you know, I have a lot of culinary experience, but I'm just talking about my life experiences. And I think, you know, the cookbooks that are really resonating with people these days are ones that tell very personal stories. Um, you know, recipes are available readily on the internet now. So, you know, the idea of getting a great potato latke recipe, you know, you can look online and find a hundred of them within five minutes. But then if you go to a cookbook where someone has spent the time and given you the privilege of reading their family story and maybe hearing about where they learned the recipe and how they cooked it and how it makes them feel and having that space and the time to talk about it and to really invest in that. Like to me, that's the beauty of a cookbook. A, a cookbook is a safer. <laughs> I love that. It. It is. I mean, it's, it, it's a record of tradition it and it's such, it's a, such an educational tool. And, you know, people like Michael Solomonov, who came um, is a James Beard Award winner, the owner of the Hav restaurant in Philadelphia, and many 
Israeli-influenced restaurants in Philadelphia and now in New York, and Enad Admoni from Balabusta restaurants. And there are a lot of chefs out there who have been sort of waving the flag for Israeli food for a long time. And, you know, like we learn from our elders, <laughs> these are people that influenced me greatly and who I now have the privilege to work with and to learn from and to exchange ideas with, you know, so like food is a very, very porous, like the ideas go back and forth and we're always, people are always talking and seeing what one another are doing. And it's just a great community to be a part of. And it's, I view it as like a huge privilege to be a part of. I sometimes like pinch myself and can't believe that I get to do what I do. So. Okay. So last question, you're flying into, so you live in Israel. So this is a hypothetical Adina Sussman. Okay. You're flying in, you live somewhere else. You have like a few hours to spend somewhere in Israel, somewhere in Israel before you have to head back to the airport. You can have a meal somewhere. You have one meal. Where are you going? It could be a restaurant. It could be someone's house. Sure. Oh, that's such a good question. Can I give you like a Jerusalem and a Tel Aviv? There are no rules in this podcast. Yeah, of course. Okay, no rules. So I would say um, in Jerusalem... I would go to Chatzot, which is a place that has like super Proustian kind of vibes for me because I lived in Israel for five years after college. And my friends, my friends and I would go there late at night and have their amazing uh, chopped chicken and onions on the grill with their Middle Eastern shawarma spices stuffed into a fresh hot pita with amba, which is an incredible sauce that in itself tells the story of like Jewish migration. You know, it's amba is something that is, you know what amba is? It's a yellow, tangy, it's a mango sauce, right? So when you hear mango chutney, you think India. So there was a group of Iraqi Jews called the Baghdadi Jews who went to live in India for um, business purposes and eventually moved back to Iran and then made their way to Israel. And they were the people who opened out of the sabich and falafel stands in Israel. And they started putting this condiment on the falafel bars and then it just went viral. And now you can get it in every place. So like I would go have a chatzot, chicken, onion, or maybe a Moorabi Rushalmi, which has a lot of parts we maybe don't want to talk about on, <laughs> on, a, on a podcast. As a family pod. <laughs> it's a family show with Trina and salad and Amba and all the hot stuff. So that would oh, be I love it. Jerusalem. Um, and also it's in the Shuk Machane Yehuda area and like anywhere that there's a Shuk within, you know, within reach for me is a great place to be. Oh, and then in Tel Aviv, um, I mean, I feel like when Israel, when people come to Israel, like they're, I'm going to focus on like things that are really essential to like your experience here. I'm not going to give you a taco, you know, or a bodega burger, really. <laughs> so um, there's a there's a wonderful uh, place in in Tel Aviv called Hakosem, which is, means the magician, and it recently came under Tohar um, Peshkacha. Shouts to Stav, friend of the pod. <laughs> yeah, and um, Hakosem is known for serving street food but uh, on restaurant quality level so like you can go there and get like an insane shawarma plate or the most unctuous delicious velvety hummus that probably has more tahina in it by weight than chickpeas and and like fabulous fresh pita incredible salads you can also get a little pomegranate cocktail there you're sitting outside you're watching tel aviv go by Arik, the owner, is just the most incredible host. He's someone who has been obsessed with restaurants since he was a child, and they were an escape from him from a troubled childhood. And he takes that and makes it a chavayamitzah kenet, which means a restorative experience for himself and everyone who goes there. And just a very special place with wonderful food. Um, 
So those are, those are just a couple of the many, many, you know, many, many recommendations that I could give you in Israel. Oh my God. This is unbelievable. Okay. So to bring it all home now. So what's your project that you're working on now that you're super passionate about? What, what should the people look forward to? Um, I would say just follow me on Instagram where you can follow my adventures. I, I do a lot. Of, I'm doing a lot of recipes on Instagram now and showing people my life in Tel Aviv and in the market. And then look out for my Shabbat cookbook, which is coming out in 2023 from uh, Random House, Penguin Random House. It's the follow-up to Sababa. Um, it's finally, we're nearing, you know, the home stretch here as far as getting the manuscript in, the photography. We just finished one of the last photo shoots yesterday. Um, we, I send them sometimes post up little snippets online as well of those. And, um, you know, I really love hearing from people. So if anyone's in Israel and needs restaurant recommendations or just wants to say hi, just shoot me a message, you know, I'm here for you. I mean, in terms of like value add, in terms of quality of life, things that add value to my life, <laughs> this cookbook is like on the Mount Rushmore of things that I'm looking forward to. So this is going to be amazing. You. Guys, Thank follow you. Adina on Instagram at uh, Adina Sussman. She's also on Twitter, but follow her on Instagram. Uh, she's amazing. Bye, Sababa. Look forward to the new cookbook. This has been unbelievable. Dina, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Man, <laughs> that was really one of my favorite episodes of this podcast, like, ever. I mean, what an incredible insight from Medina. What better window onto the organic nature of traditional learning could we possibly ask for than food, than cooking? Traditions being passed down from parent to child, holistically shaping our experience of everything, from the mundane of the everyday to the sublime of the Sabbath. I mean, religion, faith. These things are more than texts, more than abstract principles to be evaluated and either accepted or dismissed. I mean, those things are just the beginning. Real faith is about family, community, laughter, tears, celebration, that glow you feel basking in the warmth of grandma's cooking, knowing that intermingled with the flavors are the memories, the faith of her grandparents. I mean, this is what life is all about. And it's this that brings us that much closer to a relationship with God. I mean, just wow. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the pod, please go ahead, be amazing. Head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts and give us a rating, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast, presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at Soul Shop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul